Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Today, if you will, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. I'm going to read one verse and then we can be seated. And I go ahead and apologize. My, I've been battling this sinus stuff like a lot of other people doing so my voice has come maybe kind of crackly and maybe go out and in on me so today just y'all just pray with me about that Isaiah 6 and 5 the Bible says then said I woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts you may be seated Today we're going to talk about starting a new set, new lessons, but today we're going to talk about our holy God. And in that lesson today, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a vision that Isaiah Isaiah experienced. And but later in that today, but, but the life in, of holiness is rooted in our communion with God, and forms the foundation of our fellowship with other believers as well as our mission of witnessing of not to non-believers our, our holiness is, is our communion with God that's our relationship with God but it also is it, it is it's our witness to non-believers and it's more than just a dress when you talk about holiness it's more than just an outward it's, it's, it's an inward also this series will help us demonstrate that holiness properly understood is not just beneficial but a bit beneficial to our salvation, but it is the core of what means it means to be saved. What, what it really means is, is, is holiness is what it means to be saved every day. Our walk with God every day is, should, we should, should experience or we should show holiness in our life. I'm going to start out today in talking about <clears throat> um, a story out of Second Chronicles 26. and There was a king named Uzziah. As he, um, as King Uzziah, he was he was a king, a great king. Not since the days of King David had there been a been a king that had battled the Philistines, the Philistines is like he had. He he had he had um, King Uzziah. He had he had great victories in battle. He had great things in life. Nor nor since the day of Solomon had their name of a king been so widely known or so so widely praised. His chest, you know, probably swelled with pride because of some of the accomplishments as he as a king had, had accomplished. So, you know, as we look at Uzziah, we look at, his, we look at his life and we look at his, you know, we look at what he accomplished. Sometimes in our own life, we find ourselves just like him. Sometimes we find ourselves just like him that we find to the place of, if not careful, we find ourselves taking on that pride of this is what I accomplished. 
Even though we know that God has, has allowed us to accomplish things. And, and I don't want to get ahead of myself in this story, in this, this part of this story, but I just feel like, you know, he, he, we, we, we can find ourselves, or I find myself, I put it that way, I find myself there sometimes. Even though that I know God gave me the ability, sometimes it's easy for that flesh. And that's what happened to him in this story. He burst through the doors of the temple, and we know that if you know the story of Second Chronicles in Second Chronicles about King Uzziah, he, he stormed into the, the 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 temple to praise to put up praise. But in the law of that time, it was not his place to do that. Behind him, you know, he found himself. He moved into the 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 holy of the holies of the of the the temple, and as he did that. Uzziah went to burning incense for the Lord, and <clears throat> but then the priest looked at him, the head priest looked at him and said, it's not your place. He says, you're not called to do this. The sons of Aaron is the only ones that are, have the ability or has the, is God called to do this. And so, but, but what King Uzziah had thought, he says, because I've accomplished all this, I'm the king. Who's going to tell me what I can do? What I cannot do. So he broke into the, to the temple and he was going to do this. And as he stepped forward and as he had that boldness and he had that, that spirit of what he became upon him that he could, he could do whatever he wanted to do because he had that king. He was the king and he, was, he had accomplished so much things and he, he was known by so many people. And so he found himself in a place that he shouldn't have been in, in and begin with. And as the priest told him, he says, you're, you're trespassing and in dangerous grounds. And if we, and I, I know I'm just kind of hitting bits and pieces of this story, but I know I'm, I'm going to refer to it later in the, in, in, in the message. But, but as he stepped forward and he, when he, his boldness and his, his going forward, God struck him down with leprosy. He said he's unclean. The Lord judged him. The priest, they priest rushed forward him and they put hands upon him and they carried him out. Of the temple. He was no longer king. Because he was a leper. The mention of King Uzziah. In Isaiah 6 and 1. Provides an important backdrop. For the narrative of this chapter. Because it tells. What happens when you. Get out of your place. It tells what happens when you step on. Into somewhere that you shouldn't be. On, on holy ground. The downfall of King Uzziah is a classic Old Testament illustration of the corruption of power. At 50, he, had, he had reigned for 52 years. Uzziah is the second longest recorded royal reign in all of Scripture. Such longevity and is testimony to the era of unprecedented peace and prosperity. Marked by remarkable victories over historical enemies like the Philistines and the Amorites. However, the glory of Uzziah's reign came to a humiliating end in his banishment as a leper. The writer of, of Chronicles gives us the reason in the introduction of this tragical story. He says in 2 Chronicles 26 and 16, he says, But when he, talking about Uzziah, was strong, talking about he was strong in his flesh or he's strong in his spirit, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. So sometimes in our life we allow just like Uzziah, we allow our heart to get in the wrong place. And that becomes our destruction. Uzziah's destruction's destructive pride 
Then was the perfect foil of Isaiah's response here. He's showing us that the, the interrelationship of humanity and holiness. If, you're, if you have a humility and holiness, I'm sorry. When you have humility, you become holiness. Or you have holiness, you have to have some humility in your life. Two assumptions that shapes the story of Isaiah is we see him seeing this vision. The Lord allow him to see. And we see two assumptions that shapes our understanding of Isaiah's vision. The first is that the account is the report of Isaiah's initial calling as a prophet based on his confession of sin in his life. The second is that the vision took place within the precedence of Solomon's temple since the Sephirims took a coal from the, or the altar to cleanse Isaiah. However, one important thing to, I want to bring out here is, is bear in mind that, is that neither of these points is implicit in the text. Or it don't say that in the text. But we see that from some of the things. Although the, Isaiah's location is not, not very clear where he's actually at, you know, it's when he sees this vision. What is clear is that he saw the heavenly throne room where God sat on the royal council. You know, it wasn't important where he was standing. We know that he was in, the, he was in a holy place. Or in his vision, he was in a holy place. And so, but what we are, is clear in this here is, 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 is Isaiah saw something that no other, no, not many men or not many people ever saw. Two important clues are given. First, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, which gives us a sense of a dramatic height. We see him on a height level, see him above the, any other flesh. We saw him at a, at a height of, and lifted up in a, in a level of, of authority in his life. Added to the description is the comments that, that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. The word in Isaiah 6 that translates into, the, into train usually refers to the seam or the edge or the hem of an, a garment. So thus the, the first awe-expiring element of Isaiah's vision is quite simple, the size of what he saw. The size of the temple, the size of the robe, the size of things in his life. This very, just the size of things is the first thing that pops out. Standing in the temple, Isaiah looked up and saw the exalted Lord seated on a high throne in his heavenly realm. His figure was so large that just the hem of his garment was as tall as the temple itself. So that, makes, that just gives you a visual of what to me, or that's what I kind of, when I was studying this, I felt like, you know, kind of give you a visual of, of the size of the, the, the vision he saw. The size of the Lord and how high and lifted up he was. What Isaiah saw then was the Lord seated on the heavenly throne with his feet resting, on, resting in the temple. Perhaps this vision is, the inspira- is, is that that inspired the prophet later in Isaiah 66 where he, he, he wrote... Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So, t- so today, you know, sometimes in this vision we see, you know, Isaiah's throughout his scripture. We see where he wrote things, and I feel like sometimes this vision was his beginning of his ministry. But also it put him in the right direction. We see him, and I think he refers back and forth to this throughout his ministry, and the, this prophet of, you know, as we see. Other elements of the vision added 
to its overwhelming sense of God's holy glory. First, Isaiah witnessed the presence of a six-winged Sephirim who apparently served as the throne's guardian or the throne barriers. One word, the word Sephirim, derived from the Hebrew word which means to burn. So what the best translation then would be the burning or a fiery ones is what, what the scripture indicates in the, that, that binding, their binding brightness of their impurities. A sephirim, these, these creatures that he saw in his vision. I feel like you know, the Bible talks about how they're, 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 they were brightly, they're, they're blinding brightness. They took, on a, they took on a level because they was, it, was a, it was a next level of holiness. The sephirims continuously cried, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, ho- the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, and when we hear this scripture, this, scripture, when they, they, this triple use of this, this word holy indicates the Lord's holiness. Anytime in the Bible when a word is repeated, that puts extra emphasis on that word. And today, and I feel like in the scripture, when it repeats this word three times, that gives it that much more emphasis on this word holy. And it is he, as he is the holiest being, that there is the creature or being God is he was talking about the holy, holy, holy is the host. He is perfect and he is pure. Three further observations reinforce this point. Isaiah noted that these Sephiriums, who are themselves bright, fiery beings, use their wings to cover their faces, shielding their eyes from the even greater splendor of the divine glory of the God sitting on the throne. So today, you know, even though we know that you know, he talks about these, these, these fiery creatures or these fiery, fiery beings is bright and they're, they're elegant and they're this and all that, that about them, but they were still overshadowed by how holy and the brightness of God sitting on the throne. Also, their cry connected the divine holiness as the source of the divine glory in their life. Here they was, you know, their, their cry, cry out was more than just a, a cry. It was, it was connecting divine holiness with divine glory in, 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 the, in the vision. Finally, the final line of the angelic cry could be better translated as the fullness of the earth is glory. In other words, the earth was, the earth's very biodiversity and beauty expresses God's profound glory. So, to, you know, when we look back at the, sometimes we don't even have to see Isaiah's vision. We don't have to see what Isaiah saw in this vision to see how profound God's glory is. Every morning when the sun rises, every new sunset, we see God's glory. I, I was thinking about this as I was studying and as Brother Justin and Sister Sarah, on their trip, their vacation, they showed some beautiful pictures of the landscape that they saw when they, when they vacated, on their vacation. And, and I just, that beauty of that, that just carved out in, into the landscape. How can you see that and say, how, how, how there's not a God made that? How could this just, somebody say that this just happened? We see how God's glory is 
in everything we make. It just, just in the things every day we get up and walk outside and we see nature and we see how everything works together. All that is God's glory and it increases. Just as a, just as a sun, new sunrise and sun sets, as unique as a human fingerprint, actually it increases a total amount of God's glory in everything we see every day. It just in, in my even in my own life, I've realized when you see these beautiful sunsets or you see these beautiful sunrises, it just increases how how much glory God has in my life. Or I just or I or, or I experience how much God really, you know, how He is so His 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 power is so gloryful in everything we do. The claim of the angels' cry is not only just the God's holiness and glory that are greater than that of any any other being, but it also attributes to the increasing as time rolls toward eternity. His glory gets greater every day. As time rolls on towards eternity, every day as we go, I feel like God's glory gets greater and greater, as, as just as the angels say. We, we should probably be surprised us here today as Isaiah's description of his peak in the, the heavenly realm. You know, as we look at this, we read, we read through Isaiah, we find in Isaiah his, his vision that he sees and some of the things that he, he, he refers to in Scripture and some of the things he sees, we should, we should, you know, it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, but sometimes we find ourselves longing for that, to see what Isaiah saw. But the Apostle Paul later described a man in Christ taking up to the third heaven, who heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. What Paul is saying here is he's saying that sometimes, you know, you experience some things that it's not, it's, it's not, it's not lawful for any man to utter. It's, you, you see words or you hear words. What you see when, they, and, and I feel like these men like Paul and, and, and Isaiah, they, they saw a little more glimpses of some things, you know, that, that just normal people don't see. And, but I'm here today to tell you, I'm not here today to tell you that just Paul and Isaiah, there's people in this building when we experience God's presence. We experience things that's, that's not of this world. When you feel God's presence in prayer, when you get along with God, and you, you don't have to be in a, the Solomon's temple, or you don't have to be in this place or that, but you be in your own bedroom and get, get really honest with God. And get to that next level with God. Anybody here ever gotten to that next level with God in prayer? And, and when you got to that next level, you felt things that wasn't just, just, just normal. You experienced things that was not just the same. Cares of this world drifted away when you got in that alone time with God. The job, on the job, things on the job didn't matter no more. Things that was just impressing on your mind and your schedule. When you have got in that next level with God. We all we talk about getting, having a prayer life and, and and pray every day, but there's sometimes that you get to another level in prayer, and we need to get that level many times because that's when God can really minister to us. Is when we get to that next level in prayer. Sometimes in life, you know, we pray our prayer, we pray for our people, and and, I, and I, I'll be transparent today. Sometimes I, I I kneel down to pray and I I pray for so so and so sick, so and so this and that need and that need, and before I know it, I've you know drifted into prayer or whatever, I've got up, but I didn't ever get to that next level. 
But sometimes when you get in prayer, you get lost in prayer. And when you get lost in prayer, you get to experience, you experience some of these things. When it doesn't matter what the world is going on in the world. Because you're alone with God. You see things that's not, that's not like mankind or not flesh. The Apostle John's vision of the resurrected Christ on the island of Patmos quietly, literally stunned him. He says in Revelations 1 and 17 that I fell at his feet as dead. Because when he came in, into the presence of the Almighty God, the Bible says he fell at his feet as dead. He was unworthy. The flesh... You have to get, you know, the flesh is not worthy to stand at that place. Something about divine self-revelation throughout Scripture leaves humanity dumbstruck with awe and with fear. It is not all, it is not at all clear that any of these men would describe their encounters with God as holy, God's holy glory as exciting or even pleasant. In scripture, sometimes they're they more more they refer to these scriptures. I'm not downplaying or not making it sound like it's a bad thing, but sometimes when they experience true holiness of God, there's more fear or more unworthiness that comes forth than being exciting or pleasant. The sephirims that surrounded the heavenly throne were at best bizarre or at worst frightful. In their appearance. While seeking to see the Lord for who he really is sounds like an obvious noble thing to do. It has never been an encounter that, that was sought lightly. You don't take that lightly. When you step into the, and, and everyone in the scriptures that refer to this level of, of uh, stepping into that next level with God. They didn't, didn't encounter that, that situation on lightly terms. In fact, the most of the biblical accounts, it wasn't a counter that they was never even sought for. Because it was something that, as, as Scripture says, as Paul and John and Isaiah all three say, you know, it was overwhelming. It was a place, a place of time, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself some a little bit, but uh, about Isaiah. But but Paul said, you know, this was a little bit fearful because you don't understand, you know. You, when you reflect your life up, what God's life is, or what you should be, as Brother Boyd preaches all the time, you know, what if we, one day on, when you do get to heaven and God stands you up if, beside the person you could be, could have been, and that's what happens when when you step into the presence of God, when you get to that holy of holies, or is, and that's what Isaiah, when he stepped into this this level of in this vision, he saw himself. What he really was, upside of what, how holy God was really, well, it really is. It is impossible to see God and remain as you were. Every man, man and throughout the scripture, or every person throughout the scripture, that every, that every really truly experienced this relationship with God was changed. I spoke about it, did a message a few weeks, or actually this past week. I spoke in a message and talked about Jacob. Jacob wrestled with the angel. And the Bible says that he, when the day breaketh, the angel told him to release him. And he said, in that, and, and the scripture says that he said, I will not release you until you bless me. And when he blessed him, he had a, he, after that it became, a, there was a name change. But there was more than just a name change. 
he had a life change. And that's what happens in our life when we experience that relationship as Jacob and, and all these other men that I've been talking about today. When we experience that, relation, that, that experience, there's something changes in our life. You cannot be the same when you experience that relationship with God. In the vision, the Bible talks about the temple was shaken. Isaiah describes for us the effects of this vision. The cries were so continuous from the, the Sephirims and so loud that the heavenly temple was being shaken. This description clearly calls, you know, the Bible talks about, in the, in the, in the vision, it talks about it shaking the temple. The post to hold the temple up was purely shaken from the, from the, the loudness and the voice of, of the, the authority of the, the, what the, the Sephirims was, was, was crying out. This description clearly recalls is an exodus of Mount Sinai experience, which were marked by the voices of the trumpet exceedingly loud and the mountain that quaked greatly. When we find ourselves, you know, find these experiences like this, he's talking about the shape violently. It's been a, there's a reference in a book that says in the notes that the smoke recalls the incense that filled Solomon's temple and the clouds of the presence of the de, that descended on the tabernacle and led Israel from the wilderness. This same power that led the children of Israel out of Israel. The same power that throughout the things, the same holiness that throughout the scriptures was the same scriptures that the power that was shaking the temple on this day. Isaiah responded to this awesome sight was, was not wow. He was not like wowed about this. He wasn't excited about this, but he said, whoa. Woe to me. Isaiah pronounced himself undone. It is clearly, it was clear he saw himself as doomed to die. Again, the most immediate thing that came to Isaiah's mind is, is the story I talked about in the beginning. Uzziah, Uzziah. Uzziah had only trespassed the physical temple. And, and I talked about what happened to Isaiah when he, 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 and here Isaiah says, Isaiah says, you know, here I'm, I'm doomed or he feels like I'm doomed out here. I'm undone. I'm, I'm not worthy. And now he's standing in this holy ground and, and probably in the back of his mind, he's remembering that Uzziah trespassed in the temple and he was not worthy. And what did God do to him just in the natural temple? And now what was worse was would wait for Isaiah, who had trespassed the heavenly throne room. You know, here, I, here he was thinking about Uzziah had just trespassed on a natural temple here on earth. But now here he stood unworthy, undone in the heavenly throne room. What would, he, what would God do to him? God had clearly told Moses when he requested a vision of God's glory in Exodus 33 and 20, says, Thou canst not see my face, for thou shalt no man see me and live. From that point, the holy glory of the Lord was seen as so overwhelming in its power and purity that mere humans could not physically survive it. Isaiah knew all this. Isaiah knew that he, what he saw, what he was seeing in his vision. How am I going to survive this? Because Isaiah was a man just like me and you. So Isaiah was 
all this stuff was going through his mind and thinking about what's going to happen. Moses encountered with the back parts a small portion of the divine glory was so powerful enough that it left his face physically glowing. Just tells you how much power, you know, how much glory and powerful the presence of God. Isaiah's sense of doom, doom stemmed from the renewed sense of his own sinfulness. He knew his own life. Just like me and you today, we know what sins in our life. We know what nobody else has to tell us how unclean we are. He was a man of, he, as his own statement, he was a man of unclean lips. However, biblically speaking, speech reveals what lies in the heart. And so I feel like that's what he, he was saying. You know, so I think it wasn't talking about what he was speaking. It wasn't his language he was coming forth he was talking about. He was speaking about that what lies in the speech is what lies in the heart. Isaiah's words should probably be seen as a confession of a generally sinful deposition rather than a than a certain just grand transgression. It wasn't that he had he had did this sin or that sin in life. He was he was referring to his general sinful deposition. He was his his life, his flesh. He knew that he lived in a fleshly body that was corrupt, that had, that had sinful tendencies. And, and so today, just like we are, you know, we've we got our Sunday best on today, but we know when we stand in the holy of the holies, or we truly, before the majesty of the divine holiness, all Isaiah could see was his own corruption. When we, when we stand in that, it doesn't matter how, how holy we are, we're always going to feel like we're unworthy when you're standing in the presence of God. The holy of the holy. And so, so that's what Isaiah is saying. It's not that he was a sinful man. Not that he had robbed a bank or created a, you know, murdered someone down the street before he got there. It was because he knew that his sinful corruption and it magnified in the light of God's moral perfection and absolute beauty. So, you know, sometimes when we have things in our life, you know, even though we've prayed about them, we still keep them in we know we know our minds. And so when we stand in that light, you know, we know that light shines on darkness. It shows the corrupt things in our life. And that's what, that's what Isaiah is referring to. Isaiah is referring to, he knows when that, that light was shining on his life that he was, it, was, it was showing things. He knew if he knew what was in his heart or he knew what was in the deepest of his heart. He knew what, if he knew that, he knew God knew that. It doesn't matter how good we are can hide things. God knows our heart. As Isaiah stood awaiting for his final blow, I feel like he was, you know, he was thinking about Uzziah. He was saying, well, he wound up with leprosy. I wonder what God's going to do to me. When he was standing there waiting for a, his final blow, one of the Sephirims broke rank and took a burning coal from the altar and proceeded toward Isaiah. Could you imagine being in Isaiah's shoes. You're standing there and you're feeling this condemnation in your own life and you feel like all this and all of a sudden when these fiery beasts or whatever you want to call it, you know, because in his mind he probably was thinking, you know, here, here he comes to take me out because like he did Uzziah, all of a sudden he got leprosy and they drug him out of the temple. 
Here he probably felt like, okay, here this here is coming to take me out. Take the final blow. He took that burning coal from the altar and proceeded toward Isaiah. The Bible says that the fire is, is seen primarily not as a cleansing agent throughout the scripture, but as a symbol of divine wrath. So even though Isaiah knew this, Isaiah looked at this fiery, thing, fiery beast and this, fire, this coal off the altar, coming at him as a, as a divine wrath, thought you know, he was going to take him out. So here he, he probably, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to put words in his mind, but I'm just talking about if, if I was been standing in his shoes. Here he would have been thinking, you know, what, well, he's going to take me out. But Isaiah likely assumed, assumed that this, this Ephraim had been dispatched to finish him off. Then suddenly, unexpected, something amazing happened. Instead of incinerating Isaiah right where he stood, the angel gently touched the mouth and pronounced him forgiven and purified. Fire meant for judgment had become fire for purification. And that's what God does in his mercy. God changes, changes that. He said sometimes in life, you know, things that this fire is, is throughout Scripture is, is referred to as, as just for destruction or for judgment because, because Isaiah's heart was right because he, he confessed his sins. It became that judgment became purification. This moment was triggered by Isaiah's forthright confession of his sin. When we only, only can, we can only imagine what might have happened if Isaiah had attempted to escape this divine presence. You know, he was fleshless like I am. All of a sudden, you know you feel this in your life. You feel your, how undone you are, how this here, and all of a sudden this fiery beast. What would have happened if he would have turned and ran? How many of us could have stood there and not took off and running the other way? You know, but he stood there... Knowing he was undone, knowing, but he had confessed his sins. However, a key aspect of God's moral perfection is that he is perfectly loving and perfectly merciful. Forgiveness then should be understood as an overflowing and divine holiness. That's what forgiveness is, is divine holiness. The Apostle John later summarized this principle. In 1 John 1 and, 3, 1 and 9, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we stand in that light, as Isaiah stood in that light that showed his sins, Isaiah shows us how to respond. We must confess our sins and he shall forgive us. What was transparent was a shift in Isaiah's fundamental relationship to God from sinful outsider to holy insider. That's what happened when he was forgiven. That's what happened in his life. Isaiah was now positioned to hear the deliberations of Jehovah's counsel. Giving his now sanctified status, Isaiah was allowed in to the divine discussion in much the same way as God included Abraham and the deliberations regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Now because he was been washed, he had been cleansed, he had been purified, now his clear purified state, he was able to enter into the deliberations for the judgment of this coming, in his, in his next will, his next job. Without even knowing what the task was, 
Isaiah volunteered for divine service. Isaiah said, whatever it is, God, I'll do it. Sometimes we seek to be called before we have been cleansed. And we seek to be cleansed without making full confessions. And that's the truth be told, we would much rather skip the whole confession forgiveness component of worship and go straight to praise and to commission. However, if we ourselves, if we allow ourselves to stand in the searing light of God's holiness instead of condemnation, we will find forgiveness and new purpose for our life. None of us enjoy having our faults exposed. Anybody agree with? Anybody? Nobody wants us to show out, show what, what, what's wrong in our life. And nobody wants us to stand up here behind a list behind us telling what, all the things we've done. But uh, author Scott Mata's excerpt that we are actually neurologically wired to fear criticism in much the same way we f- that we fear failure or change. He says, even happy people are four times more likely to remember criticism than praise. And experts say it takes a br- our brain at least five positive events to make up for one psychological, one effect that just one negative effect has in our life. We have to have five positive to overshadow one negative in our life. No wonder we are so adverse to Christian discipline and, and confession. We don't want to we don't want be, see ourselves negative. We don't want to see ourselves experience negative in our life because we're wired not to have that. Logically, why would we, so afraid of being found weak and imperfect, openly share our own weakness? and our own imperfections. But confession is a core to Christian discipline. We are commanded by Scripture. In James 5, says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The ideal that confession is part of worship is important, though difficult to grasp. Sometimes, you know, we don't look at confession of our sins or as part of worship. This difficult... Difficult may be related to abuse of this practice of other, other faith traditions. Sometimes, you know, we, sometimes people has used that against people in, in situations. So that may be why I'm a little bit, a little bit leery about sharing our faults, even, even in a controlled environment. However, the self-revelation of God we experience in worship calls us to be likewise self-revealing, authentic, open, and brutally honest. It doesn't matter if we tell who we tell, but we honest with God. Confess our sins to God. I've said this many times when I ask about this here, confessing your sins. I says, we need to confess it to the one that, that can do something about it. Because no other man kind walking on earth can do anything about my sins. I need to confess them to God. He's the one that can forgive me. God cannot be honored by a veneer or high-sounding words and beautiful phrases covering over a heart rolling with a manner of evil thoughts and desires. Confession is, in a sense, an automatic spiritual response. 
Any glimpse of God's holiness and righteousness shows us in the starkest of terms our own sinful misdeeds which must enter confession or ignore to be our own determinant. God will not com- compel confession. But as being created by, for worship, it is our most natural reaction to touch God's holy presence. Confession is worship crucially. Confession is worship's crucial turning point because it opens up a path to forgiveness and to cleansing. When we, when we get honest with God, that's a crucial turning point in our worship. It's when we get truly honest with God and confess, He knows our sins, but when we, He wants us to confess them to Him. When we get honest with God, it opens up a, a new level of, in our prayer life. Open a new level in worship. Without it, it remains trapped in our self-deception. That we are fine. We're okay. And there can, no, and there can be no saving transformation. Or, or, nor any divine intervention. Confession is the omission of needs that provides God a path for the demonstration of His power. When we get honest with God, then He can demonstrate His power. Worship is the only safe context of the act of, con- of confession. It is, a, it is in worship that our fears are, of criticism and exposure meet the assurance that, that the one we worship in holy and, that is holy and gracious, just and merciful and righteousness and loving. Our wrongdoing will become recon- reconciliation over our sinfulness when we will consume by our holiness and our cries of woes will turn into calls to service. We truly honest with God. We stand in that light as Isaiah did in the vision. He's seen a lot of things, but there was a transformation in his life. When, when the difference between Isaiah in the vision and Uzziah in, in the temple was his heart was right. He confessed his sins. He confessed his sins. He, can, he confessed that he was not worthy. King Uzziah was saying, he was broke, pounding his chest, saying, I'm the king. I can do this. I can do whatever. He was looking at these, the priest and, and, and looking at what God wanted in order in life. And he was saying, I'm the king. You look at my list of stuff I've accomplished. And he was, his heart was not right. That, that's why he left a leper. That's why he walked out. He was, he, 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 he was charged by God. But today, Isaiah was the same unclean man. He had the same sinful nature in his life. But he walked out a change, a change in his life. So today as we, we look at this, this, this lesson, as we look at the holiness, holiness is, is, a, is, is a relationship. Holiness is part of worship. Holiness is more than the outward. It's inward, as I said earlier. And today is if you want true holiness in your life, we've got to stand in that light of God's presence and allow it to reveal anything in our life that's not right. And as we stand in that light of, and, it, and, and we give it all to God and, and, and 
ask for forgiveness, he will forgive us. He's faithful. He is, he's, there's the promise in the word that says he's faithful to forgive us. Today as we stand across here today, I'll leave you with that message today. Today is holiness. We should strive to be holy in everything we do. But we also we need to strive just not that we want to stand in that light. We need to allow God's light to shine in our life every day. And show us the things that need to be took out. The things that need to be cleansed. And allow the altar, the coal off the altar to, to touch our lips and cleanse us. Let us pray today. Lord, I ask you to touch us and anoint us today. I ask you to go right minister to us today, Lord Jesus. And allow us to allow the light of your holiness to shine in our life today. Allow, allow it to, Lord Jesus, to reveal, Lord Jesus, the, the sin in our life, Lord. And allow it to receive anything that's undone, Lord Jesus. Allow it to minister through us, Lord Jesus, and to draw us closer and give us a life-changing experience, Lord. Lord Jesus, where we can do your will, Lord Jesus. I ask you to touch and anoint everyone here today. Anoint the remainder part of this service, Lord Jesus. Touch us and anoint us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.